You're listening to Time in the Word. The Judaizers charged that Paul's teaching would lead the Galatians into lawlessness. Paul countered that the false teachers wanted to replace one expression of legalistic bondage for another. Who was right? In this section, Paul argued that a proper apprehension of the doctrine of justification by grace through faith alone would lead to a life of spiritual freedom and holy love. In 5 verse 1, Paul wrote, Christ has liberated us to be free. Stand firm then and don't submit again to a yoke of slavery. In chapter 5 verse 13 he wrote, For you were called to be free, brothers. Only don't use this freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but serve one another through love. Warren Wearsby says that liberty minus love will issue in license, whereas liberty plus love will result in service. What is the purpose of this liberty? Using liberty for selfish pursuits is not love. The real goal of spiritual liberty is to serve one another. A sinner has been set free from the bondage of self, sin, and Satan, so that he might become a slave to others. Let us listen as Dr. Gonzalez concludes his exposition of Galatians chapter 5, verses 1 through 15. Galatians 5, I'll start in verse 1. Christ has liberated us to be free. Stand firm then and don't submit again to a yoke of slavery. Take note, I, Paul, tell you that if you get yourselves circumcised, Christ will not benefit you at all. Again, I testify to every man who gets himself circumcised that he is obligated to keep the entire law. You who are trying to be justified by the law are alienated from Christ. You have fallen from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision accomplishes anything. What matters is faith working through love. You were running well. Who prevented you from obeying the truth? This persuasion did not come from the one who called you. A little yeast leavens the whole lump of dough. I have confidence in the Lord. You will not accept any other view. But whoever it is that is confusing you will pay the penalty. Now, brothers, if I still preach circumcision, why am I still persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been abolished. I wish those who are disturbing you might also get themselves castrated. For you were called to be free, brothers. Only don't use this freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. But serve one another through love. For the entire law is fulfilled in one statement. Love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out. Or you will be consumed by one another. We looked at verses 1 through 4 this morning. And we said that verses 1 through 12 is where Paul clearly tells us that we are to stand in the freedom that we have been given. And in verse 1, there was a positive and a negative command given. One was to stand firm and the other one was to not allow ourselves to be um, entangled or with a yoke of bondage. Let's look at verse 5. For through the Spirit, by faith, we eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. Believers, Paul is telling us here, have an eager anticipation of the future. That verb, wait, literally means to receive from out of. So when Christ comes out of heaven to translate the living and to raise the dead, 
the believer will receive from him the completion of salvation, namely that immortal and incorruptible body. And notice that he says, believers await the hope of righteousness. They're not waiting for righteousness. Rather, they have righteousness, which gives them hope for the future. So believers, Christians, those who have been born again, await the hope of righteousness. The Bible teaches us in in a number of different uh, sections of the New Testament that the believer is marked by hope. Paul wrote elsewhere, listen to what he said in Romans chapter 8, verses 24 and 25. Now in this hope we were saved. Yet hope that is seen is not hope, because who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with patience. Claims that hope is, and I quote, the expectation of the final public acknowledgement by God of the believer's acceptability with him. Think about that. Now notice that he says that hope is made possible through the Spirit, by faith. The presence of the Spirit within the life guarantees the acceptance of the child of God and verifies the validity of his faith. If I look back just a chapter, chapter 4 and verse 6 of Galatians, Paul wrote, And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So this hope that we have is possible through the Spirit by faith. Paul said, again in Romans chapter 8, verses 10 through 11, But the Spirit is life because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you, then He who raised Christ from the dead will also bring your mortal bodies to life through His Spirit who lives in you. That's our hope. Listen, legalism, whatever shape, form, flavor, color, legalism has never delivered a single soul from the penalty of spiritual death and the problem of physical death. Not one. Thus, Paul's concern over the Galatians. But faith, what legalism cannot do, faith in the crucified, resurrected Christ has achieved both the removal from the penalty of spiritual death. Legalism can't do that for you. So when you embrace a gospel that requires you to do You fall from grace, not as a believer, but as one attempting to become a believer by embracing another gospel. And then in the first part of verse 6, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision accomplishes anything. Paul teaches us in chapter 3, verse 28 of Galatians, that in Christ there is spiritual oneness. A circumcised Jew who gets saved has no advantage over an uncircumcised Gentile who is saved, who becomes a Christian. And the reverse situation is true also. Thus, circumcision, the point he's making, is that circumcision is not essential for either justification or sanctification. But he says, instead, in the latter part of verse 6, what matters is faith working through love. What does count to God and to Paul is faith working through love. Faith accomplishes anything. It is strong and it has an innate ability to produce holy deeds once we have been 
justified. You remember that Paul, in writing to Titus, he reminds all who read this epistle, who are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, he says that all genuine believers, all born-again Christians, are, and I quote Titus 2.14, eager to do good works. The motivation for the works of faith is love. We come into a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ by grace alone, through faith alone. And once we've entered into that personal relationship with Almighty God, the motivation to do the good works that we are eager to do, the works of faith is love. In essence, what Paul is teaching us is that a genuine believer will work not to gain or to keep his salvation, but he will work to show with loving gratitude that he has been redeemed by the Lord himself. You remember that in 2 Corinthians 5.14, Paul says, Christ compels us. Divine love must be returned by human love. Verses 7 through 12, Paul starts discussing some of the perils of the false teachers. In verse 7, he He tells us that they hinder us. Under the leadership of Paul and the elders there, the Galatians were continuing in the faith according to Acts chapter 14. Paul had equated their spiritual progress with the running of a race. Look at verse 7. He says, you you were running well. They started well. They were running, but they had not yet finished. Quite often in races, uh, if you've ever watched... uh, track and field matches or competitions or even if you watch the Olympics, uh, oftentimes I've, I've seen when runners uh, begin to, to race, I've seen instances where one particular runner will suddenly dart in front of another, which ends up causing the second athlete to sort of break his, his stride. Uh, in some instances, I've seen some athletes stumble as a result of the actions taken by a runner who may be next to them or passing them. Sometimes they even get pushed off the field. Well, you think of it spiritually, this is what was essentially happening to the Galatians. The question is, in verse 7, or prevented you, shows that someone, if you use the, the metaphor of a race, someone had in essence come and cut in front of them, causing them to fall or to stumble. And the result of that interference was disobedience to the truth. The question is, who prevented you from obeying the truth? They had started well. They had started by faith. But now they were trying to finish the race by legalism and self rather than by faith and the Spirit. So one of the perils of false teachers is that they will hinder you from obeying the truth. A second thing he points out, this one in verse 8, is that they end up persuading us. There are three words in this section that are related. In verse 7, the word is obeying. In verse 8, the word is persuasion. And in verse 10, it is have confidence. And in a sense, this is like a play of words. The persuasion, not to have persuasion, with respect to the truth of grace, had been imposed upon them. There was a change of conviction. And notice that he says that that change of conviction in verse 8 did not have its source in God. Notice he says, did not come from the one who called you. God had called them in the grace of Christ. And now they were moving towards a false gospel. That persuasion and that conviction, that change of conviction 
did not come from the one who called you. God doesn't call men to himself by two different systems of salvation. He is, as Romans 3.30 says, one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Not two ways, one. But they will persuade. They will influence. Are they successful? Well, were they? In Galatia? Yes. Are they today? Yes. The false persuasion or the false influence, of course, came from these legalists, the Judaizers, the ministers of Satan. Listen to what Paul writes. He uses very strong language when he says this in 2 Corinthians 11. Listen to what he says. For such people are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. How many of them are standing as we speak behind pulpits preaching right now, persuading? He says, and no wonder, for Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no great thing if his servants who disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, their destiny will be according to their works. Paul understood one thing. At the end of the day, the enemy is not a person, an individual made up of flesh and blood. Paul clearly saw beyond the human opponent to the supernatural opponent. Satan was attacking God, but he was doing it through the hostility of the Judaizers toward Paul. And that's how the enemy works. Another thing is that they, the false teachers and the false teachings will permeate. Look at verse 9. There's a familiar axiom quoted to show the subtle corrupting influence of these false teachers, of these Judaizers in their midst. A little yeast, what? Leavens a whole lump of dough. You see, the nature of leaven is to spread unto the whole is affected. It is not content with just a part. It's very similar to cancer. The, the nature of cancerous cells within a human body is the same. It is to spread, to permeate the whole. Moral and doctrinal error, like yeast, like cancer, will spread undetected. When false teachers come, and this is typically the way they get to persuade and influence churches or entire denominations, a false teacher will become the, or an influential teacher within the, either a church or a denomination, and they don't preach from behind a pulpit or in a classroom heresies that one would naturally react to if one heard. For example, if I came into a church or if I, you know, somebody stood in, behind this pulpit and said, Jesus is not God, we would all immediately have issue with that. That's not typically how, how the drip, drip, drip happens. It starts with smaller things that are more easily go undetected, and then it starts growing from there. But the whole point Paul is making is how whatever heresy is brought into the life of a fellowship, make no mistake about it, it will in time, if it goes undetected, permeate the whole. And the only remedy for this is really vigilance. And followed by uh, vigilance, it's immediate purging or immediate surgery. I mean, in a similar situation where error had been tolerated to the spiritual detriment of the congregation, you remember in 1 Corinthians 5-7, Paul commanded, clean out the old yeast so that you may be a new batch. 
the Galatians started well. The Galatians had been instructed by Paul himself. But as these legalists came and gained influence and started teaching, their false teaching was beginning to permeate the entire church. And now the church was finding itself abandoning the very gospel. I would argue this, that no amount of heresy should ever be permitted to exist within a local church. Why? Because a little leaven, what? Will infect the entire batch of dough. Another peril, verse 10. Look at verse 10. I have confidence in the Lord. You will not accept any other view, but whoever it is that is confusing you will pay the penalty. They trouble the church. Three things to note here in this verse. First of all, Paul stated his conviction that the believers would recognize the doctrinal peril as they would reject legalism for a life of faith and that they would expel the heretics. Notice that he says in that verse, I have confidence. But also notice that the confidence was not in them. It says what? I have confidence in the Lord. Now, they needed for Paul to write this letter to correct the error, but Paul wasn't confident in the people themselves. He was confident that along with the letter, the Lord would correct the issues in those fellowships. He firmly believed that they would ultimately obey what he had taught and written. But again, his confidence was instilled in the Lord. Second, the church would get its thinking straightened out. He says, you will not accept any other view. The trend of thinking would be reversed. But again, his confidence was not in their ability in and of themselves to do it, but in the Lord's faithfulness to do it. And then third, the leader of the Judaizers would receive both from the church and God judgment. Notice that he says, but whoever it is that is confusing you will pay the penalty. Paul we assume that based on what we're reading here, Paul was not aware of who that person was, who the leader or the leaders among the false teachers were. But he's confident of this one thing, that whoever he is or whoever they are, that they will receive or they will pay the penalty. See, the trouble to the Galatian church was both mental and spiritual, involving the perversion of the gospel. Paul didn't really care whether he knew or not who they were or who he was. For him, it was not an issue of personality. It was an issue of principle. Paul, per se, is not offended at the simple fact that a leader among the Judaizers or the Judaizers were speaking against and contrary to what Paul had been saying. He wasn't concerned about the fact that the false teachers were causing the Galatians to look at Paul differently by claiming that what he was teaching was incorrect. He was not offended by the fact that he was being put down. This was not an issue of personality. It was an issue of principle. Paul was concerned about the Galatians. He was concerned about what was being taught and what was being accepted and what was being put into practice in that church. And then another thing we see in verse 11 is that they persecute Paul. The Judaizers were in essence claiming that Paul was a religious chameleon. They would, in one place, charge that Paul preached the necessity of circumcision to a Jewish audience, but that he omitted that requirement for salvation when he spoke to a Gentile congregation. He changed his colors depending on who he was talking to. That was at least in part the charge being brought against him. Paul, of course, we know, never did what they said, and he denied that very accusation vehemently. Now, for the sake of argument, because this is the approach Paul takes here, for the sake of argument, he assumed the reality of their claim. Let's say what you're saying about me is true. If it is true, 
If I still preach circumcision, verse 11, still being something clearly that he taught at one time in his Pharisaic life, then why am I still being persecuted? You see, the the very argument the Judaizers were using against Paul was a self-refuting argument. They were saying Paul is, is a hypocrite in that when he speaks, us to, he speaks to a certain audience, he says a certain thing. When he speaks to another audience, he says a cer- certain other thing. Well, Paul is saying, if, let's, argue, let, let's pretend the argument is valid. Let's say you, you, what you're saying is true. If, if it's true that I'm still preaching circumcision, then why am I being persecuted? Isn't that what you Judaizers preach? Why are you going after me if I'm preaching the same thing you do? At least to one audience. I mean, the results of the assumption are then given. First of all, there would have been no persecution if the Judaizers had been right. The perceptive question, why am I still persecuted, reveals the inconsistency of the charge. And second, the offense of the cross, verse 11, would have been rendered what? Inoperative. If I'm still preaching circumcision, what would be the offense of the cross? The offense of the cross includes the total helplessness of man to contribute to his salvation. It destroys the wisdom and the power of men. That's why he was being persecuted. He was not doing what he was being accused of doing. He was preaching the gospel of grace, which ran contrary to what they were proclaiming. Verse 12 tells us that they, in other consequences, they unsettled the believers, wherever they may be. Notice that he says the Judaizers were, in the word here is disturbing. The verb means to unsettle or drive someone from his house. Now think about this. In a sense, when the Judaizers are insisting to folks in Galatia that they must observe the law, that they must be circumcised and whatever else in order to be justified, when you think of that definition of the word disturbing, unsettle or to drive someone from his house, in a sense, the heretics, the false teachers, were evicting the Galatians from the house of grace built upon the rock foundation of Christ and were trying to move them into the house of self-righteous works. An interesting passage came to mind when I was looking at verse 12, and that was Matthew 7. And I'll read this to you. Listen to what Matthew 7, 24 and forward says. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them will be like a sensible man who built his house on the rock. The rain fell, the rivers rose, and the winds blew and pounded that house. Yet it didn't collapse because its foundation was the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and doesn't act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell and the rivers rose and the winds blew and pounded the house and it collapsed and its collapse was great. Paul is saying here, these Judaizers are evicting you from the house of grace and are placing you in a house that is built on sand and it will collapse and its collapse will be great. Paul's words calling for legalists. I mean, look at the words he uses. In your translation, may use the word mutilated. In mine, it says, get themselves castrated. I mean, clearly that was not to be fulfilled literally. Rather, they were meant to stir the Galatians to cut off relations with the legalists. And he says in verses 13 through 15, stand in love. In the first 12 verses, he's saying, stand in freedom, stand in liberty. And in the remaining verses, 13 through 15, he's saying, stand in love. 
The mark of a genuine spiritual disciple is love. You remember John 13, 35. By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. What could cause such love? Legalism or liberty in Christ? Stand in freedom, stand in liberty, and stand in love. And you can stand in love because you are free. Legalism cannot produce the kind of love that serves as evidence of our personal relationship to Christ and of our brotherhood as Christians. Warren Wiersbe says that liberty minus love will issue in license, whereas liberty plus love will result in service. Amen. You are called, if you're a born-again Christian, if you're a child of the living God, you were called to be free, and you are free. Paul insists, stand firm in that liberty. It is for freedom that Christ has set you free. Don't allow yourself to be entangled with a yoke of slavery. Our ability to live out our faith in a way that glorifies the Lord and our ability to love one another in spite of differences is liberty in Christ, not legalism. For the first time ever, we can actually choose to love somebody in spite of what our feelings may be for that person, which almost seems like a contradiction in terms. But if we forfeit this freedom, we will be under the yoke of slavery. And if we forfeit the gospel, every convert we gain is a convert that will never experience in this lifetime the love and grace and mercy of God and in the lifetime to come will spend an eternity paying for their sins. We must protect that at all costs is what Paul is trying to instruct our Galatians here. 